This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? <laughs> yeah. Can you dig We seem to be having some technical issues with the <clears throat> computer. But welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse. Not quite a food show. Not quite a gardening show, not entirely an energy, geopolitics, economics, urban planning, tech review kind of show either. Fairly clever, sort of funny, occasionally musical. Whatever you want to call it, we'll be with you until 8 o'clock. Uh, Bushy is my name, and regular co-conspirator Adam Grubb is in the studio, shaking the precipitation from his Paddington Bear anorak. Good evening, Adam. <laughs> hey, Bushy. It has indeed been a wet one. Hasn't it? You, did you have to work outside today? No, no. I ran a few errands and went and visited my mum today. Mum, if you're listening, you'll be good as gold. Mum's in hospital at the moment. Um, it was a good day for someone like me. I'm a um, what was dubbed a few years ago by a friend of mine a creek watcher. You know, like, you have train spotters and bird watchers and shit like that. But I like when it rains heavily to go and watch the creeks and watercourses respond, which um, a lot of people are thinking right now, you know, I thought you were cool. <laughs> um, I mean, it's not up there with, like, um, Hollywood sex addict as far as your, like, little niche pockets of society. But, yeah, nonetheless, I feel I contribute to the rich tapestry that is humanity. <laughs> I like it, man. It's like, yeah, it's like the permaculture version of a train spotter or something. I think so. Yeah. There was, like, just to touch on that, heading down the Calder today, and it has been pissing down for quite a while up where I live, and there was paddock rivers, like, you know, where just those little ripples in fields just suddenly become a creek. Yeah. Some of them were absolutely gushing. I remember that. trying to catch carp out of them out of the paddocks when I was a kid, just with my hands. Really? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, how did you spend this um, precipitous day? Uh, well, I spent like, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do this thing. I'm two days in four hour work days. Nice. I know. It's like the, but you work really hard. Mm. You just focus. And then, uh, that means I, I, I worked really hard. Then I took a bath, listened to an audio book, had a nap. It's a sweet day. Super. Sweet day. Got heaps done. Here, that's Sweden, the four hour work day. Cop that, Sweden. And joining us on rotation is the fabulous beacon <laughs> of light, Sarah Coles. Yeah, yeah. How are you? Well, I woke up to an email from um, the crowdfunded journalism website that I write for. Beacon? Uh, beacon Reader, saying that they're closing down. It's like this upbeat email, like, yeah, it's been a good time. You're not getting any more money. Your book project <laughs> is canned. Cool. So that happened. And then I ate too many dried apricots to deal with it and now i'm painting getting the rumble in the jungle yeah i just mm. i tried to have peppermint tea i don't know now i'm trying chips <laughs> <laughs> trying to counteract sulfites yeah. and fruit with a bit of starch yeah and that, not just go oh, fuck it i'll just work for rupert murdoch then yeah <laughs> oh, that, when you forwarded that email that was very disappointing because i've been enjoying those beacon articles um yeah well we'll find a way won't we this evening, as always, the panel operator, the bicycle whisperer, uh, whisperer is Jed McCartney. How art thou, Jed? Um, I'm getting over that little technical glitch, but uh, I'm fine apart from that. So we're all good? Well, I think we're all good. Excellent. That's, thank God you're here, because quite honestly, I would have just run through a window. Um, can we also remind you, while we've got your attention, that Radiothon may be finished, but it's not too late to subscribe, and you will still be in the running through until, I think, Wednesday week, uh, September 28th, if you are paid up by 5pm. Uh, so get on it. 
Tonight's going to be a cracker show, predominantly dominated by carbon in one form or another. In a minute, we will be going to the phone to speak with our first guest, who Adam will introduce in a moment. Uh, but a little later on, we will be getting our former, one of our favourite former Greening the Apocalypse guests, Professor David Caroli, on the line to have a chat about uh, his recently published paper of dissent. Uh, it was a recent report uh, in response to the Climate Council of Australia's recommendations that he has tabled with economist Clive Hamilton. So we'll be getting him on the phone to chat about that. But uh, Adam, who is our first guest? Well, let me introduce the the, uh, the subject first. A bit of context. Now, it's all, we could almost define our species as as the fire ape. We've been using mm-hmm. fire for a million years. And in that time, it turns out we've evolved a tolerance to air pollution and we expect our food to be cooked. Yep. That's, that's how significant it comes to us. But what if for all those million years, turns out we've been doing it wrong? Hmm. And that sometime in the 1980s, uh, some fella figured out how to do it a little bit better. Uh, and what, that, what it tells us when we know that we've evolved to air pollution is that we've been making fire and there's been a lot of smoke associated with it. But what if that smoke was no more than inefficient burning? And so you, can, you could deal with both the cancer and the coughing and deforestation in one fell swoop. Well, it turns out that's what we're going to talk about tonight, this very simple technology. And on the phone, to talk about it, we have a return guest, appropriate technology expert, Joel Meadows. Joel is an energy auditor, uh, sustainable transport consultant, environmental educator, and he's a bit of a craftsman and metal worker. And I think last time we had him on talking about his magnificent owner-built home from memory. Yep. Yes. Uh, and he teaches people how to make these things. Uh, so welcome back to Green in the Apocalypse and Triple R, Joel Meadows. Thank you very much, Adam. It's great to be on again. I hope I haven't like stolen too much of your thunder with that massive intro. No, that's that's it. You pretty much you've you've, you've encompassed it all, and um, and I'll be off. See ya. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> you can get back to your very beautiful, efficient, very distracting house. <laughs> uh, well, why don't you start just by telling us uh, what what a rocket stove is? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a funny name, and I think when people hear it, they think, oh, man, it must be sort of super high-tech because it's rocketry and stuff. But um, the, the name Rocket Stove really just comes from the noise they make because they draw a lot of air in behind them, so they've got a bit of a, a growl to them. In fact, I've got my Rocket Stove lit in the kitchen at the moment, so I could go and hold the phone up to it, and we could have a bit of a listen. But, um, <laughs> Can you really? <laughs> I don't know. That, oh, I could, but I don't know that's going to sh- make great radio. Let's let's try it, shall we? We, we have just- put you on the spot a little bit, Joel. We are kind of getting you to describe dance moves on the radio in, in a funny yep. way, but we reckon you're the man for the job. Okay, here you go. You're going to hear a rocket stove live on radio. You ready? Did oh, you that, hear that? That could be anything, yeah. Joel. You're having no, some... No, no, no. <laughs> Come on, listen again. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> the, the amazing thing, too, is that I was holding the phone right over a, a fire that's probably getting close to 1,000 degrees um, in, in its burn chamber, and I was holding it right in amongst the wood pile, and it wasn't melting the phone, um, <laughs> which is part of the, the, the amazing nature of rocket stoves. Um, so, yes, the, the name is, is, is a bit confusing, but essentially they're, they're, they're simple and elegant wood-burning stoves that take a few natural principles and use them to get the most we can get out of wood as we possibly can. And one of those is that air draw that you're hearing, which creates the rocket sound. So what, um, what the stove's doing is, is burning the wood 
And instead of the, the wood burning up, which is what we're used to seeing, or the flames burning up, we actually burn the flames down and in, into the, the stove itself. And then we use a chimney to actually, uh, the, the hot air from the burn rises up and actually draws cold air behind it, but the oxygen-rich air behind it, which actually creates the, the combustion and allows the combustion to be, be super hot. Um, like when you're, when you're using an oxytorch or something like that and adding oxygen to it just, just adds a whole lot more power to the, to the flame itself. Um, so we've got that burn going on, but the whole thing is, is insulated so that all of the heat that's being generated is being thrown back at, at the wood and at the gases that are coming off the wood. And then it, because of that insulation, it gets super hot in there. And that burns all of the gases, which means that we've got almost nothing left other than hot air at the end of the process. So it's a very clean, very efficient combustion. Um, and then once it's risen up the chimney, then we can start to do stuff with that hot air. So the, what you're listening to in the kitchen is heating my hot water service. So when the sun's not shining, which it hasn't been doing for the last few days, um, we burn the wood and that, that heats our hot water service. But you can cook with them, you can heat spaces with them, you can, anything you want heat for, um, they, can, they can be used to do that. We might come back on a few of the, the purposes and uses in a minute, actually, as well, Joel, yep. but can you give us an idea of where this idea first originates? How does it first show up? It sounds like yeah, a... Yeah, um, so, so there was a, a guy... It's funny, too, because when you, when you look around for who invented rocket stoves, there's, there's a bit of contention. There's, there was a guy called Dr. Larry Winas, Winarski. Mm, I thought you were um, going to say Dr. Rocket. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and and he, what what how how he describes it is that he he identified the natural the principles that would go to to make this process work. So he's kind of not waving his flag and going, "I invented this thing," but he's got lots of lots of accolades and awards for his his um, efforts, and he's focused his efforts on um, on really simple, low end technology that can be used in or developing countries, particularly to reduce air pollution in, from cooking, um, but also to, to reduce deforestation from, from overuse of, of um, wood for, for uh, cooking fuels primarily. One of the things about a rocket stove um, that you've just met, touched on there is that it's quite readily used by people in the third world, um, probably a bit less resource rich. And in fact, there's, you, know, you can see videos on, on the internet of people making very basic ones out of bricks and rubble and things like that. Yeah. Um, but this, this can be taken quite high tech as well if you've got the skills and the materials. Yeah. Um, yeah. To what degree, I mean, can you take them high tech that you, know, they're, you, know, you can increase their efficiencies further, you can regulate temperatures? Um, and I'm also wondering, could you apply some of the... Uh, could you apply rocket stoves to some sort of light industrial applications like bakery ovens or, or pottery kilns and blacksmith forges, those sorts of things? Absolutely. There's a lot of things, particularly processes that use uh, high volumes of hot air. So, so, as you say, bakery kiln. And there's a, there's a, a bakery in Castlemaine that, um, that has a, a, a pellet heater oven that it uses to bake its bread but essentially it's using rocket process so it's rather than feeding wood it's feeding pellets 
um, but it's feeding that into a into a chamber that has this phenomenal shoot of flame that comes off it, and then it's feeding this enormous industrial oven. And you look at the, on the side of it, and it's feeding a little little hopper, feeding these little pellets into it, and it's warming this enormous oven. So it's it's yes, it can be used at, at that kind of end, um, and there's no reason then why it couldn't be used in 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 kilns in uh, you know heating spray booths and in really anything where you, where you need temperatures i've been playing a bit with um with things where you're taking metals up to to say forging temperatures like in blacksmith's forge and that's one of the things i think you can do it just but because you've got so much air draw with them for to to feed the fire so the oxygen being drawn through to feed the fire you usually can't achieve like ridiculously high temperatures at the output because of the sheer volume of, of um, air coming through it. But anything that requires, and I mean, let's face it, like, you know, forging metal, we're, we're over a 1,000 degrees. So most applications, it's, it's going to work really well for. Joel, just so you know, people at home have been, probably m- might be struggling to visualise what we're talking about here. I know, it's a bit crazy, isn't it? So I tell you what, I'm, right now, if they... If you, if listeners want to check out the Greening the Apocalypse Facebook page, I've just published. Well, I'm just about to publish a few pictures of what we're talking about. Some of the th- key things that come through. There's the J shape, which it's it's kind of a little bit like a uh, snorkel, I guess, isn't mm. it? The the shape of the rocket stove and yeah, um, and you you see a lot out there that are L shaped too. So I think the original ones were L shaped, but the J shape is just simplifies the, the feeding process essentially yep and uh the other thing that they'll you'll see is um clicking publish now so, so hey. look for green the apocalypse on um <laughs> on facebook and the, it'll be up there in breaking a second news. breaking news uh <laughs> is the insulation that you mentioned and yeah. that's to do with the the very important distinguishing feature between this and say a kunara or a, yep. or even worse an open fire that you're trying to get the temperature up inside the rocket stove to a very high point so that the smoke itself burns and, yep. un- and only after complete com- combustion uh, do, you, do you take that heat away and use it for all those strategies that you just mentioned. Now, yep. if... When, uh, you, when you think about... Uh, oh, I mean, let's, let's not use the uh, brand name Kunara, but usually the, the, the generic term, a, a slow combustion stove or a combustion mm. stove. But when, when you think it, when, you know, when we, we draw that to mind, often people think, okay, you've got the stove and you might have a pot, oh, you know, it's heating a room and it's got a pot on top of it maybe or a kettle and then you can also attach a, a wet back to draw, you know, hot water off from that. But all of those functions the heating, the cooking, and the hot water, all of them suck heat away from the fire, and that makes the fire burn less efficiently. Mm. So that, that's one of the, yeah, the big distinctions that a rocket stove does is it doesn't touch the heat until it's risen up, up the, its own heat riser. I, sorry, I used the term chimney before, which is a bit, bit not, not correct. When it, once it's up the, the heat riser that drives that process, then you take as much heat as you want out of the out of the rocket stove, um, but you don't touch it before then. Such such an incredibly simple concept, and yet it took us a million years minus three decades to get there. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a bit of a worry, really, isn't it? Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, th- I think I think perhaps um, abundant fuel. 
I mean, it's it's sunk a few civilizations, um, mm. but we don't realise how we don't realise we're about to run out of fuel until we run out of fuel. Often, <laughs> um, mm. so so I think you know most most cultures have sort of looked around, seen all the trees, and gone, well, we've got wood to burn, um, and and it's really only when we start to you know cause serious deforestation or or start to you know think about the implications of cutting down the the trees that we have that we go okay hang on a moment let's um <laughs> let's start to use this a little bit more efficiently well joel talking about efficiency there with the rocket stove model um you talk about heating a house or, or heating water but with heating a house we've got one of those little sort of slow bustion you know i won't say canara but it's that type of stove yeah, at home. Think, yeah. um yeah. and so it's one of those things where you you get it quite warm and then you sort of close it down overnight and if you could go outside and look at our roof there'd be thick smoke probably uh, murmuring out of the chimney overnight so yep. with the rocket stove is it, is it most efficient in heating a house if you heat it directly and I, I mean like heat the room from the heat of the stove or is it better done in a sort of a passive manner where you're heating the walls of the house or heating um, water pipes running off it to um, uh, it, it, de- it depends a good deal on the house itself and this and this is where things start to cross over into you know good passive solar building design mm-hmm. areas but um but you know regardless of whether you're you're running a, a house with a lot of mass and 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 good insulation or you're just running a house with with no mass your typical you know weatherboard house that's also well insulated any heat that you that you put into that house you want to so if it's a low mass house you're going to you're going to store the heat essentially in the in the hot air mm-hmm. if um if it's a high mass house you're going to store the heat in the mass of the house either way you want to be well insulated and and either way a rocket stove is going to to do that with less wood than a slow combustion stove mm. so are, are they currently legal to to use inside gel this is an interesting area there's no commercially available um rocket stoves in Australia, um, there's a few manufacturers that are making kit form ones in the US, but you can build them quite simply. And given that it's actually legal to have an open fire in your house, yeah. um, as, I think as long as you follow the, the guidelines for the, the standards in regard to you know hearth and setback from, from flammable materials, um, essentially it's like a, a very clever open fire because it is actually open. At, at, as in the, the outlet where you, or the inlet where you put the wood in is actually open to the to the house. So you, you said uh, there are no commercially available rocket stoves. Um, no, I happen so to know rather intimately because I have been editing this and I probably should have mentioned it this this at the top of the show that um, yeah. that you and I have a <laughs> we, um, Joel sometimes uh, has run workshops for my business and uh, I've been helping Joel edit. Uh, well, Joel's been contributing some beautiful illustrations to a booklet which is written by probably Australasia's most recognised um, rocket stoves expert, um, Joel's colleague, Tim Barker. And it's not out yet, but one day we'll put it out in the world. And f- although it is available as soon as we get it finished as an ebook for free to subscribers to uh, Pip Magazine which we will later in the show have a giveaway because Joel has an article in that describing rocket stoves and there's some beautiful pictures in there as well. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, we're, we're, this is yeah. Our- at, the, at the moment, it's really, it's very much the domain of 
do-it-yourselfers and, and backyarders. And so, you know, the people who are putting rocket stoves in the houses, and I know a number of people who have them inside as well as um, ones in their yard for, for cooking and for other purposes. Um, yeah, so there, there are a number of people who've, who have fitted them into the houses and they've, they've been building them themselves. Yeah, awesome. and this booklet is incredibly detailed and there's, I think you did about 65 illustrations yeah, for a job. insane number of pictures to, uh, to make sure that people understood what was going on. <laughs> awesome. The group of people we collectively might recall, the beautiful Mavericks... I'm Joel Salison, known as the Lunatic Farmer, encouraging you to tune in every time you can to the muckraking, compost-loving, cud-chewing, soil-building, water-cleaning vanguard of Urban Hillbilly Radio, greening the apocalypse on Radio 102.7, Free Triple R. You're on Greening the Apocalypse on Three Triple R, and we've still got on the line the wonderful appropriate technology and apparently quite fire-loving fellow, Joel Meadows. We've been talking about the incredible and yet extremely simple technology of rocket stoves, which is a way of uh, burning fuel that is smokeless, and that's because it burns the smoke and you get a lot more energy out of it. But there's another thing we want to talk about in the next bracket. It also involves fire, and we want to talk about this thing called biochar. So, Joel, you're a bit of a backyard experimenter with this thing called biochar. Could you tell us a little bit about what it is? Mm, Yes, biochar is one of those um, terms that's been bandied around for the last little while, and some people think it's magic, and some people have got no idea what it is. Um, But it's basically just charcoal. Which, which we're, we're reasonably familiar with, with charcoal for, you know, either drawing with or cooking with or the residual stuff that's left over from an open fire. Um, but if our charcoal is made specifically to put through our, our compost and return to our garden, then we start calling it biochar. Okay. But it has a little bit of an aura about it because of the, um, the Amazonian phenomenon of what they call the terra preta soils, which some, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but... Uh, about right, I think. Okay. My, my, my is pretty bad. <laughs> um, so can you tell us a little bit about, about that? Yeah, well, the the, um, the Amazon, despite um, po- popular perception, is actually not a particularly fertile area. Because of the high rainfall, a lot of the nutrients actually washed away. So the soils are generally quite depleted. Um, but there were areas where <coughs> native um, people had been returning carbon, uh, so charcoal, to the, to the soil over many years and it actually built up incredibly fertile soil. So these, these black soils are, um, you know, when they were, when they were discovered by, by Westerners have uh, gained an incredible reputation as being some of the most fertile soils in the world and yet they are placed right in the middle of some of the most depleted soils in the world. Um, and it seems that what, um, what the, the Indigenous people were doing was deliberately making charcoal and actually returning it to the soil and building these very fertile soils. And we too can do the same thing. Mm. We mentioned on this show a few months ago that the, the, garden, the gardener's black gold that you'll find in all the gardening books is the thing that you have to build in your soil if you want to solve all your gardening problems is this thing called humus. 
but it turned out in the journal Nature they're saying humus doesn't exist and that in fact the organic component of your soil, the stuff that you know gives it that crumbly, dark, brown, chocolatey, chocolate cake texture and colour, um, actually isn't stable like pre- previous generations of uh, farmers and gardeners thought it was. But on the other hand, I think biochar and these Amazonian soils uh, can last for decades or centuries. Is, well, is that the yeah, case? Well, qu- yeah, quite possibly, quite possibly centuries because it was, you know, it's, it's a, a very long time since they were being deliberately made um, and yet they lasted through, through that period. So, yes, they, they, the carbon of biochar is very stable in the soil for a very long time. Um, the, the, the reason, too, why biochar is so so useful in the soil is that actually not so much that it's that it's feeding the soil, but it's providing a whole lot of habitat mm. um, for beneficial microbes and for water retention. Mm. And it's those qualities particularly that, that make it work well. Yeah, one thing to touch on with that, Joel, when you talk about biochar, as you've just said, it becomes a, a habitat for um, little microbial life forms. So there's um, it's possible to pre-prime biochar, isn't it? So um, applying it to... Yeah, liquid teas and, and human urine and things like that. Is that the case? That, yeah, and in fact, if you don't prime it, if you just put the carbon out on, on the soil, so imagine just, you know, broadcasting a whole lot of, of charcoal over your soil, that can actually be damaging for the first little while before it's fully been colonised. Um, so, so, yeah, you really want to make sure that it's been charged with a whole lot of beneficial stuff. Now, we simplify that by just putting it in our compost. Um, mm. And so every time we're making, making, you know, building up and layering our compost, we're adding layers of, of biochar to that. Um, and that means that the biochar is coming out fully charged. If you're wanting to sort of bulk add a whole lot of uh, biochar to your soil, um, you could also yeah, use compost teas or, or um, uh, you know... A, wee a, wee. A, yeah, yeah, urine, um, lots of different things that would, would give it that um, biological kick along and make sure that actually the, the pores of it are as colonised with, with beneficial stuff as they can be before you then broadcast it on your, on your garden. Mm. We'd lo- I would just, we want to get to um, how you make it in a jiffy, but you know, for the reg- a regular punter out there who might have like a, the occasional little backyard campfire with friends or have a, 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 a slow combustion stove like ours, can you use that regular charcoal if you go through the method of you know, charging it up with nutrients and things like that, or is it a very different type of charcoal to add to soil? Um, look, there's a bit of conjecture out there about the, the specific, you know, the, the perfect... Um, biochar makeup, but essentially anything that's charcoal will have at least a, a good deal of the benefits of, um, of of biochar, whether it's been made specifically for that purpose or not. Um, but you just want to make sure that you're then putting it through your compost or or giving it a soak in something good before it goes in the garden. Awesome. Um, so. This almost relates perfectly back to the rocket stove discussion at the top, I think, but how, how can we make biochar at home, Joel Meadows? Yeah, so there's a few different ways you can do it. Now, it's, in some ways, it's a little bit more tricky than your rocket stove, um, and in other ways, more simple. It depends. But probably the most simple approach is a, a, a device called a T-LUD, T-L-U-D, uh, which stands for Top Lit Updraft. It's 
I can I'll describe it briefly, but it's the kind of thing you want to probably, before you go and set one up, um, do a bit of research on, on the TLUD. Um, but there's lots of, lots of you know, useful websites and YouTube clips and things out there that you can have a look at. Um, one of the simplest ways to make one is in a 44-gallon drum and you fill it up with, with your dry, woody material that you're going to turn into to charcoal. Um, and then you need to have a lid over the top of it that can have a chimney. And the, the lid needs to have a series of holes around the, the, the rim of it. And you need to have some holes in the bottom of your barrel and pop it up on some bricks. But once you've got your, your dry material filled in your drum, you actually start a little fire on top. And then you put your, your, your cover on with the chimney. And as it starts to, as that hot air starts to draw, much like the rocket stove, the, the fire will actually start to burn down the material and and the gases of the wood will, will come off and burn, but the char itself won't burn. So the fire will move down the drum and those holes around the top of the, uh, around the rim of the lid will give it what's called secondary air. So it'll allow the, the, the gases to actually burn and the, the heat will rise up the chimney and it will burn down the, the drum. And when it gets to the bottom, and you can usually see that by the, the discoloration as it goes down the drum, then you actually get out your hose and you hose the thing down, you dip it out, and then you've got a, a well, not a full barrel because it's usually burnt out to about a quarter of its size, um, but then you've got a, you know, a quarter of a 44-gallon drum full of biochar ready to put through your compost and, and go. So that's, the, that's a very simple process. Um, the, the disappointing thing about that, of course, is all of the heat going up the chimney and disappearing up into the atmosphere. So I've been working on, on some different things that we can do to actually capture that heat and do something useful with it because of course if we can heat a house or cook food on that heat then we're making biochar and we're displacing other energy use that we would use for those those other things cooking heating etc we will put some notes up on our uh, show notes page and on facebook about where people can find out more about these things because they are a little bit hard to visualize on the radio but uh if you caught the earlier part of the conversation we've already got some pictures of rocket stoves up on the facebook page and in the not too distant future joel and uh, his colleague tim barker are going to have a rocket stove booklet coming out an ebook and you can already even though it's not ready yet but you can uh, book yourself a free copy of that if you are a subscriber to pip the australian permaculture magazine and we're going to have two copies of the latest edition of that with an article by joel meadows about rocket stoves to give away later in the show uh joel it's been fantastic to have you on mate and uh thanks for doing what you do and uh harnessing the your uh pyromaniac tendencies for the for the good of humanity <laughs> Awesome. That's been it's been very good being on. Thanks very much, all of you. No worries. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You are listening to Green in the Apocalypse on Three Triple R. Last week, the Climate Change Authority published its report on how Australia should deliver on its international climate commitments. The Climate Council criticised the Climate Change Authority report for accepting Australia's weak 2030 emissions reduction targets as the basis for its recommendations, rather than the action needed to limit global warming to less than two degrees. Two Climate Change Authority members, climate scientist Professor David Caroli and economist Professor Clive Hamilton, 
have taken the unprecedented step of publishing a response to what they say are the major flaws in the Majority Climate Change Authority report. We have former Greening the Apocalypse guest and co-author of the Minority Report on the phone tonight. Professor Caroli, welcome back. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be on again. Now, the Climate Change Authority, who you are a part of, uh, was set up under Labor and the then Climate Change Minister, Greg Combey, who said at the time that the climate change policy will be directed by evidence and facts rather than fear and political opportunism. It will take the politics out of the debate. Uh, you're a member of the CCA and the only climate scientist is a, that's part of it. Are you saying, by publishing this minority report, that it has... Uh, not exactly hit that that goal. Uh, that's correct. The uh, most recent report uh, clearly has uh, not addressed the science. In fact, it's it's really interesting when we look at a slightly earlier report uh, from the Climate Change Authority that came out in April of 2015, which recommended stronger targets, and this report completely ignores those, those recommendations for stronger emission reductions. And what, what's the difference between what uh, previous reports recommended and uh, what the current one does? Well, I guess the first thing is that the previous reports uh, were based on sound climate science and recommended strong emission reductions. Uh, and then the, uh, there was a substantial membership change with several uh, vacancies that were filled by nominations by the current government and the approach of the authority or some of the authority members appears to have been somewhat different and you can see that in the recommendations of this report which essentially support or appear to support the current government's uh, recommended um, emission reductions which are very weak compared to uh, what the Climate Change Authority had previously recommended and also very weak relative to what other countries uh, in Europe uh, or even the United States are doing in terms of reducing their greenhouse gas emissions. So if we, if we were to follow the recommendations in the latest report, what kind of world are we heading into? Well, we've got to look at this in terms of the context of not just Australia but the rest of the world following what Australia is doing. And if we were to do that, then global temperatures would rise and rise substantially and uh, global temperatures would reach between 3 and 4 degrees above pre-industrial levels, whereas Australia and the, all the other countries in the world have committed to limiting global warming to well below 2 degrees. So obviously Australia's action uh, is just not enough and, and it would commit the world to dangerous global warming. Within the report, David, you uh, refer uh, frequently to a carbon budget. Uh, can you explain to listeners uh, the, the, the idea of a carbon budget, what Australia's currently on, or how quickly Australia's currently on track to spend theirs and, and the down-the-track effects of that? Yeah, look, the carbon budget is based around the scientific understanding that carbon dioxide when emitted by human activity, uh, adds increases to the 
overall concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And although those cycle around between the ocean and the atmosphere and between vegetation and the atmosphere, the long-term removal of those additional uh, carbon dioxide emissions into the atmosphere from human activity takes a very, very long time. The processes that are needed to remove carbon dioxide long-term from the climate system take thousands of years. It either has to be removed by going into the deep soils or into rocks or into deep marine sediments. So the best estimate is that it'll take a thousand to ten thousand years for long-term removal of the carbon dioxide that humans have added in the last 100 years. What that means is that it's the cumulative emissions of carbon dioxide that determine current and future temperature changes. So that means that we can just look at the total emissions of carbon dioxide over a period of time and they determine the temperature change due to human activity over that period of time. And that carbon budget is just those cumulative emissions of carbon dioxide, not only due to fossil fuel burning, but due to land clearing, uh, industrial activity, uh, and and related uh, use of uh, fossil fuels. That carbon budget and the estimate of what is needed to limit global warming to two degrees or less is essentially one trillion tonnes of carbon dioxide in the form of carbon from pre-industrial times forever. Now, unfortunately, that a large part of that one trillion tonnes has already been used. And so when we look at Australia's fair share because Australia's share of the global population is only one-third of a percent. And, you know, one-third of one percent of a trillion tonnes would only be, you know, 30 billion tonnes. And uh, what, what the Climate Change Authority has said is that what we have to do is look at allocating that carbon budget fairly to Australia um, and when we look at the carbon budget and look at the share that it should be for Australia we're using that carbon budget based on our national emissions and that share will be is being used up much more rapidly by Australia's current emissions and again I've made a, a small mistake when we look at one percent of a thousand billion tons it's 10, 10 billion, billion yeah. ton and in fact 0.3 percent would only be three billion tons um, now in fact the climate change authority recommended that australia's budget should be 10 billion tons and we're using that up really rapidly 600 well 550 million tons a year we would use up all our budget by 2030 except for a very small amount. And what it means is that in the next 15, 14 years, we've used up almost all of the budget, 90% of the budget. All that's left for the next 20 years is a tiny 10%, and we're going to have to rapidly reduce our emissions to zero. And, you know, the problem is that actually future generations, both in Australia and around the world, want a reasonable lifestyle, a reasonable share of the carbon budget, of the carbon emissions for future generations. 
and the time that's needed to dramatically reduce emissions, to decarbonise our economy, is so short. And unfortunately, the policy recommendations from the majority report are just not rapid enough. Um, Professor Caroli, I've got a question for you. So why didn't you resign from the Climate Change Authority? Why did you take the step of um, writing this report? And is your well, life now pretty awkward in, around the office? Or? <laughs> well, it's, it's important to understand, first of all, that my appointment, and in fact all the members' appointments to the Climate Change Authority, are very much part-time appointed appointments. And as was said in the introduction, I'm the only climate change scientist on the Climate Change Authority. So the reason that I didn't resign, and I was certainly asked to resign, um, and it's been suggested to me that I resign by, by a number of people, um, but the reason is that if I resign, there would be no climate scientists on the Climate Change Authority. <laughs> it's yeah. remarkable to have an authority which is providing um, advice to the Australian government on climate change policies when it isn't informed by any climate scientists on the authority at all. They so have I'm to get rid of the word authority, that's for sure. Uh, well, I think that's correct. Um, <laughs> but in fact, the reason the authority is there is because it, is, it has been established as a supposedly independent statutory authority under legislation. Mm. And I was hoping, perhaps naively, that I might be able to persuade the other members of the authority that actually the climate science is robust and that it perhaps is the policy that is not robust in achieving the environmental goals and the environmental outcomes that are required to be considered by the Climate Change Authority in all its reviews. I'm hoping that by remaining on the authority for as long as I can, um, I will be able to persuade them that actually the climate change science, uh, as it improves and as it strengthens, just shows that even stronger emission reductions are going to be needed. It does sound like that is the case, David Crowley. We're going to have to wrap it up here. I think we'd like to get you back in the studio for a, a much longer and more detailed conversation again next time. But we do thank you for your time this evening. You're welcome. Excellent. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.